turn to the book of 2 Kings. Being very close to the end of our journey through the history of Israel, we're going to look at chapter 19 this morning. A few more weeks, four more, including this one to be exact, coinciding with our move into the building, and then we will be in the book of Philippians together. So let us now go before the Lord and ask for His blessing upon the reading and preaching of His Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that Your words are the words of life. And so, Lord, we ask You this morning that You would apply Your words, Your words in their healing power, Your words to convict of sin, Your words to bind us closer to You, that You would apply them to our lives, that they would take deep root in our being, that they would affect us not merely as we hear them, but throughout the day, throughout the week, and for the rest of our lives. Lord, we ask that You would bless Your Word by Your Spirit. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning again we have a, a longish text. And so what I'm going to do is read the first section that we'll be looking at. And then as we come to additional sections, we will move uh, and look at the text there. So if you would please turn to 2 Kings 19 and give attention to the reading of God's Word. Our Lord's Word is holy. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. 2 Kings 19, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Leachim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, had sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirkara, king of Cush. Behold, he has set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. 
Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Reza, and the people of Eden who were in Talasar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? Thus far the reading of God's word. The beginning of this text sounds familiar to what we looked at last week in 2 Kings 18. And it reminds me, and perhaps you, of something that has become much more prominent in our public society today. That is the tendency for trash talking. You may know that now you can't go to a sporting event and you're not expected to be any good at an event unless you, during the course of that sporting event, make fun of your opponent's uniform, or his shoes, or his haircut, or his city, or his coach, or anything else that you can come up with. It's been a severe detriment on sportsmanship in America today. But it's not sportsmanship that we seek in the Bible. It's truth. But trash talking can happen with respect to truth and reality as well as it can a sporting event. And we're seeing it happen here in style. As the Assyrians come up against Judah. Little Judah with its small army and its beleaguered king. And they look at it and see only one in a series of conquests. Not even the most difficult conquests. They see a deity like any other deity that they have swept aside by power of sword and spear. The difference is that they don't know the reality of the situation. It's like the one who trash talks when his team is down 30 or 40 points. It may be wisecracking speech, but it doesn't carry any power. So what I would like us to see this morning is a warning to us and a comfort to us. A warning in seeing that the cliche, pride goes before the fall, is exactly true. We'll see it in three things. First, we will see the promise, trusting in the Lord. The comfort is found in the promise, trusting in the Lord. And then we will see prayer, laying hold of the Lord. And then finally, prophecy, the reality of the Lord. So the promise, prayer, and prophecy. As we look at the end of this story of Hezekiah and the Lord God against the Assyrians. The first thing that we see is the promise that is laid out before Hezekiah and those in Judah. The promise that calls upon them to trust in the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The first thing that we see is the king's anxiety. And I want to take you back to last week. If you recall, we said that the end of that chapter gave us a dark finish to our story. There was a pause in the story between chapters 18 and 19, and it's not a pleasant pause. It's a time of fear, of darkness, of danger. And as we pick the story back up here, 
the day is still dark. There have been no changes. The servants of Hezekiah come back to him. And he knows that this is a dark day. He understands the reason that it's dark. He says this is, in verse 3, a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Those words mean more than just times are hard or I'm afraid. Hezekiah knows that the reason Judah has come to this point is because of its faithlessness to the Lord God. That it is God who brings about distress, punishment, chastisement, disgrace. These are all words that are used of those who have broken covenant with God, who are wandering far from the Lord. Hezekiah knows that his kingdom is in sore need of reform. He knows they are not perfect. He is not perfect. And they need to seek the Lord. That the Lord is behind the difficulties. This is a very different set of assessments than has happened in other places that we've looked at, especially with respect to the kingdom of Israel. Oftentimes when we come to this point and there's an enemy army at the gates, it seems the game is who can we blame? Our allies who haven't come to our aid. The enemy who won't take our bribes. The people who won't rise up and fight. The prophet who won't do his job. But Hezekiah knows that the problem here is a problem of not following the Lord. He also knows that the day is dark because they have no resources to face this crisis. He uses this analogy that I think probably hits home best only to ladies who are mothers. He says, the time has come forth for childbirth and there is no strength to bring them forth. Some of you ladies may have had experiences like that where you've been in labor for 10, 12, 14 plus hours. And the doctor is telling you, come on, push. And you're thinking to yourself, no way. I don't have another bit of strength in me. I haven't eaten. There's no food here. The lights are hot. I'm exhausted. I'm in pain. I just want to give up. That's the situation here in Judah. Judah needs someone to come alongside and to continue the analogy, perform the cesarean, bring the birth about the strength cannot do. And so Hezekiah knows the difficulties he is in. And his reaction to these difficulties is unusual for our story. Look what he does, beginning here at verse 1. He tears his clothes, covers himself in sackcloth, and goes to the house of the Lord. He does something that almost no other king before him does in a situation this dire. He repents. He seeks the Lord. And he doesn't just repent outwardly. Yes, of course he does. That's what the tearing of the clothes and the sackcloth are for. But he does it inwardly as well. That's what he means by his words of saying that this is a day of distress. He is repenting before the Lord. He does the second thing. He goes out and seeks out Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord. Now, all you have to do is contrast that one reaction with the story, if you'll recall, of King Jehoram of Israel. You remember when he was walking along the walls and the lady shouted to him and said, 
hey, we ate my baby last night, and now it's time to eat her baby, and she won't give up the baby. And the king shook his head, and he formulated a plan to kill the prophet of God. Not to seek the prophet of God, but to kill him. You see here what Hezekiah is made of. He has the proper reaction. He knows the day is difficult. He knows there are problems. He knows that he and his people are to blame. And he seeks out God. Now, this may seem very 8th century B.C.-ish to you. But it is today. Because I will tell you, as a member, as an elder, and as a minister of a church... When people start to have days of distress and difficulty in their marriages, with their children, with their finances, with their spiritual walk, the first thing that they usually do is walk away from God. Move away from the church. Go away from accountability. Go away from repentance. And try and find solutions on their own. When in reality, when you feel you might be most embarrassed, when you feel you have the least to offer, when you feel that you have the greatest difficulties placed upon you, you should go running to the only one who can solve your problem, the Lord God. That is where you are to be found, among His people, with His Word. This is the proper course of action in a day of distress. But it's not just distress... For Hezekiah alone, it's not just a personal anxiety that has gotten him, because he sees that it is God who is being mocked. Look at verse 4. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God. God is being mocked by a tin-horned dictator and his groupies. That's the reality of the situation. They are coming and saying that God is worthless, that God is a nobody, that God cannot save. There was an incident among the people of Israel that was very similar to this. So similar that the exact same word is used, mocking God. It was an incident that occurred in 1 Samuel 17. Something that all of you are likely familiar with, even the youngest from Sunday school days. It is when Goliath came up to the army of Israel and mocked the king, mocked the nation, and mocked God. Over and over again, that language is used in 1 Samuel 17. He had come before Israel to mock its God, to say that God was worthless. And what end did he meet? It was an end of certainty, of a stone. Buried in his skull by a small shepherd boy. God delivered because he was mocked. Hezekiah may remember that story, but he doesn't have David confidence. You know, David went out with his sling. That's all he needed. He knew that he was confident and he would be victorious because God was being mocked. And Hezekiah says, well, it may be. Perhaps some of your translations may have. It may be that your God, Isaiah, may deliver us. There's not a certainty here. There is a great anxiety. 
And so into the gap steps Isaiah with the prophet's assurance. He tells Hezekiah what he has been preaching all along. You remember we looked at this last week. For weeks now, for months now, Isaiah has been going around saying, don't trust Egypt and don't be afraid of Assyria. God will deliver. And his tune doesn't change. There is no doubt in his mind at all. He says, say to your master, thus says the Lord. There is not a bit of doubt under in his mind at all. He is ready to see God deliver. You see, in his mind, this is just like Goliath, or perhaps just like that other incident we looked at some time ago. In 1 Kings 20, when Syria, or Aram, came over with their army, and they mocked God, and their army was destroyed, removed from the kingdom of Israel. Isaiah's message here in verse 7 is this. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his land. Isaiah's message is one of certainty. That God is in control, and because of that, you can trust him. Because of that, you must trust him. And he lays it all out on the line. He doesn't give one of these Vague National Enquirer predictions. Someone will win an Oscar sometime in 2010, and it will be a surprise. Or these vague platitudes used by those who supposedly can contact the dead. You have a loved one that you miss. No, he says, let me tell you exactly what is going to happen. He's going to hear a rumor. And he's going to go from there, and he's going to die by the sword in his own land. Isaiah is saying, here are my prophetic credentials. Test me if I am true by Deuteronomy. And if this does not come to pass, then stone me, for I am not a prophet. He lays it all on the line. Think about what that would do for Hezekiah. What a comfort to know the certainty of the word of God. The Assyrian responds with arrogance. The story really doesn't change much. There is a false dawn here in verse 8. Rabbishekah returns. He finds out that he's got to go speak to his king and he leaves. But the darkness is still there. The army is still out there. Waiting. Playing cards. Smoking. Just waiting for the chance. Cooling their heels. There's another thing that happens that perhaps makes a false dawn as well. And that is that the Pharaoh of Egypt comes up. But we already know from last week that he cannot save Israel. He is defeated and he retreats back to Egypt. So there is a sense in which even with the word of God, the darkness, the fog has not been lifted yet. And the Assyrian lays on his arrogance. First, he had mocked Hezekiah specifically, saying, don't trust Hezekiah. Now he ups the ante. He says, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. By promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. 
He says, listen, you, Hezekiah, I know you talk a good game for the proletariat, for the blue-collar folks, but you know what is what. You know we've never been defeated. You know there's no hope. You know your God is puny and weak, and you know that he is a deceiver. The king of Assyria has gone to greater and greater heights in blaspheming God. And he breaks out his historical argument again in his mocking tone. Perhaps you've had this experience where you have a discussion with someone about politics or about sports or about a school subject, and they break out the same weary argument every single time. That's what the Assyrians do. They rattle off their list, and they say, you're just like them. And so at the end of verse 13, we're left with Hezekiah standing afraid in the darkness. And if we think about it, absolutely nothing has changed. Has it? The situation is exactly as it was. The promise of God has not immediately changed the situation. You notice that? I hope you do, beloved, because that is often where we live. We live in a place in which we hear the promise of God, in which we know the promise of God, but everything else still seems the same. We know that we will be delivered from this body of sin and this world of sin, but we look around and everything is the same. And so we are tempted to deny the validity and the power of the promise. Because we look and we see it hasn't affected our circumstances. And so the question then comes to Hezekiah, and it comes to you, when that happens, what do you do? When you go home and squabble with your spouse, and you know the promise of God that he would make of two one flesh. When you are concerned about the doctor's report, and you know the promise of God that he will never leave you nor forsake you, what do you do? Where do you go? You go, Christian, where Hezekiah does. You lay hold of God by prayer. In the midst of this storm, Hezekiah goes the only place where his anchor will hold, and that is to the Lord God himself in prayer. We see this in verse 14. As Hezekiah shows us that prayer is laying hold of God. And the first thing that he says to God is, Hail to you, O Lord. O God, you are Lord alone. In the midst of this storm, he goes and he does something very physical, very tangible, very comforting for him. He takes out the letter of the king of Assyria and he literally spreads it out in the temple before God. He lays it out. Why does he do this? Is it because God needs the Cliff Notes version? He doesn't know what's going on. Does God need to be brought up to speed on the exact tone and words of the mocking of the king of Assyria? No. 
We know from Matthew 6, verse 8, that God knows our requests even before they are made to Him. So why do this? Well, in a sense, it's the same way that I would ask you, why do you go to the Lord in prayer for your sick child? For your job situation? For your church? Has God forgotten about you? Has God somehow let you slip off His radar screen? And He needs to be reminded of all of the important needs in your life. No. You lay out your needs. You lay out your request. You lay out the situation before God because of what it does for you, not for God. Kelvin has a wonderful statement on this. He says, Hezekiah lays out this letter so that he might inflame his own passion for prayer. This is a jump starter for Hezekiah. He is speaking his own helplessness before God. You see, beloved, if you think you're not helpless, you're kidding yourself. You don't need to be six or eight or 98 to be helpless. You could be wealthy. You could be powerful. You could be wise. But you are not sufficient in yourself. And we all face circumstances, whether they be financial or relational or health, that we cannot do anything about. And we feel helpless. And so what do we do? We can stand in our helplessness or we can cry out in our helplessness and make that very need the power of prayer to God. This is something you don't need to be a Christian 30 years, 40 years to understand and lay hold of. The smallest amongst us, kids, when you think you can't get your room cleaned up, there's no possible way you could ever do it. Don't stand there in your helplessness and wallow. Cry out to God. Ask Him to give you energy. Ask Him to give you help. Ask Him to give you wisdom. When you don't know how you're going to make ends meet, pay the mortgage. Don't wallow in your sorrow and helplessness. Lay it out before God, because your helplessness is a blessing before Him. It allows Him to act. You are in the place where you are ready to receive the blessing of God. And so, Hezekiah begins by spreading this out, and then he invokes God. He says, look how little am I, and God, look how big you are. Look with me here at verse 15. O Lord, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. This is a prayer. One little verse, a couple of lines, and packed in there is a three-point sermon. He says, O oh God, you are enthroned above the cherubim. He says, first, Lord, you are near to us. You are enthroned with the cherubim here at the ark, here in the tabernacle. You are present among your people. You alone, Lord, are near. Not like these other so-called gods. You are approachable. 
You are available. You are imminent with your people. But he doesn't stop there. He says, you are the God, you alone of the kingdoms of the earth. He says, not only are you near, O Lord, you are sovereign. You alone are God. Nobody else is God. You know it and I know it. The Assyrians don't. All of these other pagans don't. But you alone are God. I come to you because you alone are in control. Manifest your control, O Lord. You are near. You are sovereign. And then he says something that is great comfort to us in our difficulties. He says, God, you are powerful. You made heaven and earth. Think about that. The most significant thing in the created universe, the creating of it, and God has done it. How could the one who created all people not control a couple of Assyrians? How could the one who created the very existence of food and water not feed and give his saints drink? God is powerful beyond anything you imagine. He is near to you. He is in control and he is powerful. Hezekiah begins with this address of prayer that is something that we should make a part of our prayer life. Do you begin your prayers this way? It's okay to ask for things. But do you begin with the majestic reciting of who God is? Because if you don't, you are shorting your prayer life. Not just because you need to rattle off things for God so He's happy with you, but in reciting all of this, it puts your prayers in a context, doesn't it? It puts your need in a context. Hezekiah here is not just reciting the truth. He's not just reading off a catechism question. He is reminding himself of the truth. And if we think about it, that's why we repeat biblical truth to ourselves. It's why we memorize the Bible. It's why we memorize catechism questions. It's why we memorize Bible stories. Not so that we can seem smart, but we do this to remind ourselves of God's power and His sovereignty and His ability and His love for us. You see, Hezekiah is reminding himself that the God that he is going to is so much more powerful than anything that the Assyrians could do. Well, after he says, Hail, O Lord, he continues in his prayer and he says, Hear me, O Lord. Hear, O Lord. In verse 16. He says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. Hezekiah now lays out his prayer before God. His actual request. He says, hear my complaint, O Lord. Hear my request. And it is a real one. He doesn't say, well, I've got this small little trifling matter here. It's probably not even worth your time, God, but okay. 
Do you do that in your prayers? Do you find yourself, eyes closed, head bowed, and saying, Well, Lord, I know you're very busy, but and I have this request. It's, it's really a small one. It's really not that important. But, you know, I have to pray for 15 minutes in my quiet time this morning, so I, I guess I will bring it to you. Do not apologize for bringing your prayers to God. Lay them out. The problems that you have are real, and God knows they are. And contrary to what some may say, problems do not go away because you pretend they are not real. He brings these problems to God, and he says, Sennacherib is mocking you, O Lord, and he is destroying all of the nations. He says, but there's one critical difference. They weren't gods. They were toothpicks, and dumbbells, and firewood, and gold coins. You alone, O Lord, are God. You see, this kind of prayer request, this kind of complaint, this kind of openness before God is what gives us hope. We lay it out before the Lord. And it brings us hope. And the end of this prayer is found in verse 19, where Hezekiah says, Help, O Lord. Help. With probably three or four exclamation points after it. He says, so now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. He says, this is a very present need. Please, save us from his hand right now, Lord. We need your help. If we think about it, prayer is one of the most difficult things in the Christian life. It's more difficult than Bible memorization. It's more difficult than learning doctrine. It's more difficult than working with relationships. Because so often, prayer is what happens to us between the crisis and deliverance. It's that moment where we must walk by faith. Where we know the problems are real and not going away by themselves. Where we know we are helpless. Where we know we cannot handle what is in front of us. And at the same time, we know the promises of God. We know that God is a God who is in covenant with us. That God will deliver. That God has promised. But in between that gap, we are left. Oh, what a good God we serve. He doesn't make you sit alone in the dark, whistling. He comes down to you. He says, speak to me, my child. Tell me everything that's wrong. Let me help. Is there anything I can do? The picture you might have in your mind is of a three-year-old or a four-year-old crying in a dark room. Scared of what they are sure is in the closet or under the bed. And what parent walks to the door and says, Be quiet! Go to sleep! Slams the door. On a two-year-old. Three-year-old. Four-year-old. No. Parent enters the room. Sits on the bed. Reminds the child how much I love you. How much I take care of you. Everything that is around you to protect you, 
everything that is watching over you, that God is there watching you. Take comfort from that. I will see you in the morning. You see, this kind of prayer, a prayer between the crisis and deliverance, is a prayer that says, these are all my needs, and God, you are sufficient to bring about deliverance for your glory's sake. Look at the end of verse 19. This is not a tack on. He says, deliver us that the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. You see, when we have an eye to God's glory in our prayers, it gives us confidence. We don't just say, Lord, please fix my marriage because I'm miserable. We say, Lord, work in my marriage because you have so designated it that the union of a man and a woman is to reflect Christ and the church. And I want everyone around me to see your glory in my marriage. Lord, Help me as I raise my children. Not because they're driving me nuts and I'm running out of hair to pull out. Help me because I want others to see the relationship between a father and a child. And that they would think of you and your tender care and you would get the glory. And when you have that kind of eye, you have boldness. You pray that mountains will get up and move. You pray that the earth will split. You pray that God will do things. That's the confidence we seek. This is what anchors us in the midst of all of the difficulties. It's what allowed our Lord Jesus Christ to say, in the midst of facing the worst situation ever in the history of the universe, your will, not mine, be done. Because he had an eye to God's glory. This is the power of prayer, laying hold of the Lord. The final thing that we see very briefly, it's actually really just the postscript to the prayer. Because the prayer is what seeks and grabs hold of God. We then see the prophecy that is laid out, the reality of the Lord in the life of Hezekiah and Judah. The first thing we see is that the Lord is vindicated. Look at verse 20. Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and he says, Your prayer has been heard. God says, This is what I will do. You see, prayer, contrary to what some may think, does not change things. Prayer lays hold of the one who changes things. God can change. God can do what He will. Prayer lays hold of Him. And this gives us great assurance. There are those who hate and mock the doctrine of God's providence and God's predestination. But as one commentator said, I would much rather have the pillow of predestination to put my head on and sleep soundly than the worry of wondering whether God is in control. You see, Isaiah says God is in control. He will take care of the situation. This is what he does. God reflects Isaiah's prayer, or excuse me, Hezekiah's prayer in his answer. He says, I will not be mocked. I will deal with Assyria. And this couplet, this song of lament comes out of Isaiah. 
Verse 22, who have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice? God exposes the arrogance of Assyria. He says, you think you climb up mountains and you cut down big trees and you think you have done everything you've done simply because you are a big shot. He says, not so. Verse 25. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from the days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, <coughs> shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded. You see, God is using the historical argument now against Assyria. He says, you think you did everything because you are big stuff. It wasn't you, it was me. I'm in control. Everything that you did that you think shows your power, shows mine, says God. God is completely in control. And he says the outcome is completely assured. Look at verse 27. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back the way by which you came. You see, this would be music to the ears of Hezekiah. Because the Assyrians were known for taking captives by putting bits in their mouth and rings in their noses and attaching ropes to them. This was before ringing your nose was a fashion statement. It was a statement that you were someone who was defeated in war and carted off. And God says, just like you have done, I will do to you, O mighty king of Assyria. Let's see who's in control. And so, we get the feeling here as we are watching this unfold now. It's like, well, there's a new thing that has basically come into our homes, for many of us. It's a device called a DVR which is different than a DVD and different than a VCR. It records what you're watching on television or what you may want to watch, and you can watch it later. But sometimes, perhaps, you may DVR, say, a football game, something worth watching a couple of times, say, like Michigan-Ohio State. And you watch it once, and then a friend comes over, and you go to watch it, and you're watching it and you say, he's going to complete a long pass, I bet you. Wow, how did that happen? Well, he's a good quarterback. Oh, fumble, I tell you, they're going to get a turnover here. Momentum's going to shift. Wait, how did that happen? Well, you watched it already on the DVR. You know the outcome. Christians, this is your DVR. You know how the story ends. God wins. Would you sweat a game that you already knew the score? Even if it was going bad for your team? No, because you know the end. You see what God does here in this prophecy to Hezekiah? And He does to you throughout the whole Scripture. He tells you to have confidence because He will win. And the proof is in the pudding. God acts. He defeats the king of Assyria. 
Assyria goes off, and then 20 years later, exactly as Isaiah had said, he's slain by the sword, by his own sons. Verse 37 is not an attack on him. It shows that God's word always comes true. So today, Christian, as you face strains and difficulties in your life, do you see the promise of God laid out before you? And do you grab it with both hands with the power of prayer? And then are you confident of what God will do? Because you already know the rest of the story. This is what God would have for your life. This is why He would have you to be comforted, stable, calm. Just as Peter says in his letter, to those who felt the world was falling around them. This is your God. He is powerful. He is kind. He is near. Let us pray.